I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics from personal stories to hot button issues. We cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday. So make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Welcome to Frau Pow, where your hosts, Odd and Rags. Um, so today uh, we are going to be uh, doing an interview with one of our teammates, Rosa Ruckus. Um, she is an amazing human and we think that she's really interesting and in trying to start the podcast we reached out to um, a lot of our teammates and other people we know through roller derby and um, Ruckus was one of the first ones that responded to us and um, and trying to brainstorm about you know where to take our conversation um, I thought about you know a lot of the stuff that she's been through or the fact that she is a very like very avid vegan and but very friendly about it and um it's also like a very heavily tattooed person and which is something i find personally interesting but she also is a single parent and she has mental health issues and um anyway to sum that all up i think just overall i wanted to talk about everything um because i think that shows us a whole image of a person and it shows how resilient people are especially women i think rosa ruckus is a good illustration of a resilient woman um and personally from my perspective as someone coming from social work who works with a lot of victims of violence and people who have severe trauma there's something called the resiliency factor and people need those things to be able to overcome anything as small as um, their parents getting divorced or anything as complex as you know being a victim of child sexual abuse and I think that just 
having resilience is such an underestimated thing and it's something we should talk about. And I just thought that was a beautiful image that we need to talk about today. I agree. Um, I would also like to add a vocabulary alert for those who don't know roller derby very well. Um, Ruckus at one point says jammer. And I just want to say that real quick, jammer is the person who scores points. They sprint around the track in roller skates. So when you hear the term, just go point score. Got it. They do all the work. (laughs) They do all the work. So Ruckus, are you ready to just talk to Mm -hmm. us and have it recorded? I, I am ready. So, um, my lovely ruckus friend, um, when did you start playing roller derby? In 2010. January what, 2010. Um, what made you interested in joining the sport? So, I had a lot of life changes in 2009 and made some pretty silly decisions and um my mom actually was at a parade and there was a group of skaters there handing out flyers and she gave me a flyer um and it sat on my coffee table I lived by myself at the time and I had it on my coffee table for months and one day after work I was sitting at home like binge watching some tv shows on dvd And I was like, what am I doing with my life? Get out and meet people. So I drove to a practice unannounced and walked in and just needed to do something with myself and started skating that way. That sounds really cool. I uh, joined roller derby originally. Um, I'm sure as you know, uh, that my therapist made me get a hobby. So you mentioned that you had some life stuff happen in 2009. Um, Do you want to talk about any of that? So I was married right out of high school. I uh, graduated. I didn't even attend my graduation because I was so eager to get away from school and that life that I was stuck in. And I went to Ukraine for a summer with my boyfriend at the time. And when we got back, we got married and I was 18 and he was 21. And that was in 2006. And then February, 2009, he died in a motorcycle accident. And after that, I really didn't know what I was going to do with my life. Not that any person at that age really knows what they're (laughs) going to do with their life. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people have these changes in their life and they feel lost but that really compounded that feeling lost in me and um it just started going out a lot and making unhealthy relationships and I don't drink and I've never really been a drinker or a partier ever but that year I was making a lot of decisions to go out and uh just not take care of myself. So yeah, that's really what I spent that year doing. And um, so that's why I left the flyer on the coffee table to finally motivate me to get out of the house. So you aren't really, I mean, when I hopefully rags agrees with me, but like when people meet you, I would not assume that you were going to be someone at the age of 18 that would like be married. You know, I see you as like a very independent person and not saying that 
independent people can't get married, but you know, like it just doesn't fit the sort of narrative I would like make about you. Um, so why, why did you guys to get, decide to get married? So he was, um, he was my high school sweetheart. I met him when I was 14 and I had the biggest crush on him and we were always together and eventually we started dating and he was my high school sweetheart, but he was also um, an immigrant from Ukraine. And um, when his mother, she got married and became a citizen, but he, she didn't include him in the process. So when she got married, she actually kicked him out of the house to move in with her husband. Um, so he moved in with me. My mom let him because he was a really sweet guy and um, just needed help getting on his feet. So he moved in with me and my mom and got a job down the road and started going through the process of getting his citizenship on his own. Uh, he was denied citizenship. Um, this is going to sound really silly, but one of the reasons they can deny uh, citizenship is being a habitual drunkard. Seriously, <laughs> that's what his paperwork said, why he was uh, rejected from becoming an American. How does one like record that you're a habitual drunkard? Like how is so he had uh, he had quite the arrest record, but none oh. of it was like legit. You know, he was arrested once for jaywalking and public intoxication, like stuff like that. Yeah. So he had quite an arrest record, but he never actually did anything except get drunk. So um, he he was arrested many times, even as a teenager. You know, he was always drinking. So he was arrested many times, did have a record with a lot of alcohol related charges. Um, but like I said, nothing really bad. Um, so he was denied citizenship and uh, we decided to get married because we didn't want to lose each other. So um, I don't like calling it a green card marriage, although I guess that technically is what it is, because I feel like when you say a green card marriage, it suggests that you don't actually care about the other person. Like neither yeah. of us really believed in marriage at all. But it was something that, um, you know, we discussed just because we did love each other and didn't want to lose each other. That sounds like an 18 year old's decision. Right. <laughs> and how did your parents feel about you guys getting married so young? Um, I don't really know. Uh, I know my dad wasn't in support of it, but my dad just he's never liked anyone, you know, that I've brought around. I don't know if that's just like a dad thing or what, but even though he was very sweet to me and a hard worker, he just never liked him. Um, my mom loved him though. Like she adored him. So even though I'm sure she didn't think that getting married at 18 was a smart choice for me, she at least respected it and understood why because she knew how much we loved each other. So then um, what did your marriage teach you about relationships? Um, that it takes a lot of maturity. Um, I can say that even though I loved him so much and I still think about him all the time, that making that sort of commitment at a young age being that immature wasn't the smartest choice because 
I mean, I don't regret it. You know, I didn't want to lose him. I didn't want him to get deported. And I already told him that if he was deported, I would just go to Ukraine with him. It was a beautiful country, but our relationship was very rocky. We were just young and, you know, I mean, he obviously had a problem with alcohol with his arrest record and that's actually what killed him on the motorcycle. Uh, he was just going a half mile home and wiped out, uh, hit a pole and broke his femur and his femur severed his femoral artery and he bled out. And that's, you know, it was the alcohol that killed him. Um, so he had a problem with alcohol and, you know, I think when you're that young and you're put into this position of like really heavy responsibility, you know, a lot of people aren't ready for that. And I definitely wasn't, and he was not either. So I, I guess just, I learned that it takes a lot of work to make a relationship healthy and function. It takes a lot of compromise and it takes a lot of maturity and, you know, neither of us had that. We had love, but we didn't have the other things. And it made for a lot of arguments and stuff like that. Um, I just think that that story um, about your husband is such a good illustration of a lot of different parts of you, um, just like your strength and persistence, um, but also your ability to be really reflective. Um, I also sort of feel like we're on a radio talk show right now. We are on a radio <laughs> talk show. It's called a podcast for a reason. There we go. There's a joke. <laughs> um, but I mean, and I know we talk about this sometimes, but um, how do you feel now about your relationship with your husband and your husband's death um, now that there's been, you know, some time between uh, that incident and now? I mean, it's going to be, um, it's been, what, nine and a half years now that he's been dead. And it's still something that weighs on me um, daily. And I know that that's not good for my mental health, but I still uh, really struggle with the guilt. I think about how, you know, he was on his motorcycle in February because I wouldn't insure the car for him. And I keep, I didn't insure the car for him because he crashed. Um, he had a Saturn, he crashed, then he crashed uh, Tercel, and then he got a Honda, which he crashed. And all three of those were drug and alcohol related crashes. None of them involved other cars. They were just him passing out or so drunk or high that he drove into a wall. Uh, and the insurance was coming up and I didn't want him on my policy. And I thought that saying I wasn't going to insure the car and he would have to bike everywhere would sort of kick him in the ass to straighten out. And I feel like that really backfired because instead of making a smart choice, he rode his bike, his motorcycle to the bar that night. And I feel like had he been in the car, even if he did hit that pole, it wouldn't have killed him. So like that guilt still weighs really heavy on me. Yeah, and I can course. tell myself over and over again that 
you know, it's not my fault, but I mean, it still feels like it is. And I still feel so guilty and awful for that. And that there were so many things I could have done to help him make better life choices. But then again, you know, I was, I was 21 when he died, he was 24. So again, not like peak age for maturity, (laughs) you know, like becoming a 21 year old widow is definitely life changing. Um, but I, I don't think that it really helped me grow. Um, yeah, but I can see that. having yeah. my daughter definitely changed who I am, like in my core. Yeah, and I can definitely attest to the fact that you've created a very good human, a very <laughs> adorable, <you>. yeah, <laughs> very adorable human who is so smart and loving and caring. Um, like how is your relationship with her? Well, um, she's six now, so she's getting a little testy, but I mean, we're very close and I, I know it's not healthy to say like your kid is your best friend. Like you're a parent, you have to have that role of, you know, authority and you're the responsible one. And I, I feel like I am those things, but she's still like my little buddy if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, that really shows in your interactions and um, you getting her involved in roller derby and getting her on skates when she was like a toddler. Actually, her first game was in utero. <laughs> I, I did not I did not know I was pregnant and I skated in two games. And I remember, this is back when I enjoyed jamming. And I remember jamming and getting so sick. And I was like, what is wrong with me? Like, why am I so sick? Why do I feel like I'm going to throw up every time I hit the track? And then, uh, like, two weeks later, I found out why. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, I mean, I want to throw up sometimes when I get on the track, but I am definitely not pregnant. It's just anxiety. <laughs> so do you have any, like, particular hopes or dreams for your daughter? I mean, I'm just kind of thinking about like the roller derby side. I don't have like hopes and dreams in a very specific sense. Like I want her to be happy and I want her to break the cycle of mental illness in our family. I don't, I want her, I want to instill healthy coping skills at an early age because I really suffered from anxiety as a child and now that I know what that feels like and I see these things sort of coming out in her now I I just want I want her to be okay and functioning and happy and coping with whatever life throws her way and that's my biggest hope and dream for her right now you know as far as like you know jobs or derby or education I mean those they're important, but at the same time, sort of trivial when you're talking about mental health and happiness, I guess. Yeah. I mean, as, as someone who is the child of a parent that did the opposite of that, I can say that it seems like your perspective is fairly healthy. <laughs> yeah. Um. So what are you doing to help her kind of get at those healthy coping skills because I know we've talked a lot about personally talked about a lot of um 
how anxiety manifests in our lives and how that feels. But I know for a six-year-old, that's probably, that's not something that she can really like comprehend. So I think back to when I started having anxiety around her age and how I just wanted someone to like hold me and tell me it was okay and tell me everything would work out um, and sort of talk me out of like the negative thoughts in my head um, and these fears that I was creating. And that's what I'm trying to do for her when she starts having these anxious moments over little things. I tell her it's okay and that she is okay and that whatever she's worried she left behind is replaceable. What matters is she's okay and she is okay and nothing bad is going to happen to her. And if she thinks she forgot a headband in the car, we'll check if it's, if it's there. And if it's not there, it's just a headband and it's okay. And to breathe, she's loved. She's okay. So that's sort of like the talks that we've been having lately. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I know when I was a child and I had those moments and I was like scolded, you know, it's hard for a child to express that they're having anxiety because they don't even know what it is. Like exactly what you said, you know, it's really hard to express what you're feeling. And, you know, I didn't have people that really understood that. It was just, what are you doing? Stop being crazy. Go upstairs, go to your room, you know, stuff like that, where all I really needed was to be told that I'm okay. Things are okay. Yeah. I know that from, for me, it was like a lot of stomach aches and um, I had like very serious digestive issues when I um, was in elementary school. Um, but yeah, my parents were very dismissive and um, not great and supportive. And I think I definitely agree with you. Like I probably just needed someone to tell me that I was just fine and everything was going to be okay. Like the spelling test in third grade didn't actually matter. Well, I also think that, like, you know, as an adult now, like, as an adult with anxiety, it's so hard for me to even verbalize it that can you even imagine, like, a six-year-old trying to talk about anxiety and how they're feeling? Like, I don't want to talk about my feelings. Imagine a six-year-old trying to talk about it. Exactly, yeah. I just, I mean, I still need people to just remind me about that I'm loved and I'm fine. Um, Sometimes I call ruckus to hear that. It's pretty good at it. She's lost practice. (laughs) So how has it been with uh, co-parenting with your daughter's father? Well, um, annoying. (laughs) In the beginning, it was really hard. We split up because he was making a lot of really poor life choices. He wasn't very nice in the beginning. He was very aggressive and very controlling and so difficult to deal with. I spent so many nights just crying because I was so overwhelmed and, you know, the threats of going to court and who's going to do what with custody and all these things. And, but, you know, we've been split up now for three years and I can say that like every year it gets a little bit easier to talk and co-parent. And I feel like we're back on the path to becoming friends, which is obviously ideal. 
for our daughter. We're able to like laugh and joke. And when our daughter is having these outbursts, you know, we get the other person involved, like if she's having a temper tantrum, you know, so that it looks like, you know, we're still on the same team. Like we want her to know that even though we're not together, we're still working together in her best interest. And it took a really long time to get to that point. And we still have our moments of not getting along. Um, but it's so much better now. It just took a lot of time and it took a lot of maturing too. So um, since you joined roller derby, just from like my perspective, um, it seems like that has been become a really big part of your life. It's become like thoroughly integrated. Um, like that's where a lot of your friends are and um, that's, you know, you have your daughter involved in it um, and that sort of thing. And so how does like roller derby help, help like support you, I guess, in your mental health or any of this stuff that you have been through? Um, it's the friends. I mean, it's a fun physical activity. And I think that if I didn't do roller derby, I don't really know what I would do to stay active. So I think like the physical aspect is really good to keep me moving and, you know, just go really hard. Like at practice, that's two hours of going really hard. And that feels so good to then just go home and have that energy out and just get that out of my system. But the bigger thing is definitely friendship. Yeah, it makes me happy too. I like, I don't think I'd be able to see my friends if I didn't have like a pre-scheduled time to see them. I don't think, I don't think I would have friends if I didn't have like a pre-scheduled time to go see them. Yeah, I, yeah, I completely understand that. And I just, I also have seen people in our community really rally around other people. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it just, it feels, um, especially with like your daughter, like bringing her to practice and being able to hang out with her and seeing how other people are immediately like going to come over and, you know, play a game with her or teach her <laughs> how to run like a ninja. And I love too that like, like you guys are our family, you know, like she talks about our team all the time and talks about them like their family and it just makes me so happy to know that she has these women in her life that really would do anything for her and she loves them so much. I think that's a really great point because I just growing up I did ballet and just like read a lot by myself um, but like my my role models role models were not like strong women. They were like toothpick women who danced right. around. I mean, ballet is very hard. I will put that out there. But the types of people that you idolize when you're young and doing that activity are, it's not the same as like roller derby. Or I just, I think like our group in particular and just like being so supportive and open and encouraging like I never got that in ballet like I wasn't really encouraged or empowered um so I wanted to talk about how um you feel about being 30 so I know you we had this thing with your birthday and um I just wanted to 
you know, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but like, what do you think is some advice that you wish that you had heard um, as a young kid? So now that you're 30, like reflect back. To, mm, to really follow more of your gut and to take better care of yourself and worry less about taking care of others. Not that you shouldn't take care of others, you know, help, help out, but make sure that you're taking care of yourself first and foremost, because I think that that's a huge struggle I have. Like I, I don't give, I don't have any self-care and I think that that has weighed a lot on my confidence and self-esteem and I wish that when I was younger, I had taken the time to like really get to know me instead. I feel like I missed out on a lot of opportunities because I was worried about other people instead of myself. Yeah, I I think that's a really good point because I think that's a double-edged sword, especially for someone who I think is like extremely sensitive to other people and like extremely empathetic that it can it's such a beautiful gift that sounds so cheesy (laughs) um but it's it's like a beautiful gift that not everybody has but also like it does come with a lot of baggage absolutely um i was really hoping that you'd bring up the meth in the light bulb story (laughs) personally okay well uh in high school I definitely got involved with a crowd of older people that liked to party pretty hard. And uh, there were a lot of alcohol and drugs around and sex way too young. And there was definitely some meth in a light bulb from some hobo that got off a train and his name was Patrick and he was from California. And he had a girlfriend who this guy tried hitting on at a bonfire the day we smoked meth out of a light bulb. And then this other guy took a fiery log and hit him in the head. And he ended up in the hospital. And I was in high school at the time. And then the next day I went to school and this kid was like, I saw this guy. And I thought that, oh, man, I wish she was here because she would totally like to know this guy. He's crazy and has a mohawk. And I was like, that was Patrick. I was I know why he was at the hospital. And then they're like, of course you would know a hobo from California. (laughs) I just think it's funny that you decided that you wanted to do meth as someone with a lot of anxiety. (laughs) Well, I wasn't really experiencing a lot of anxiety at that point in my life. It was uh, more depression (laughs) presenting itself as depression. Yeah, I guess that that would counter (laughs) that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, sometimes I'm very surprised that you made it out alive out of your childhood. <laughs> I'm really glad that you did. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> but I feel like it has to be said, like, we're yeah. really surprised, like, knowing you and knowing your life story and so much of, like, what you told us today and what you told us in the past that, like, hearing about all of this is just like, oh, my God. But just also seeing, like, who you are today yeah. and, like, yeah, well, and you. I just, it's... um I think it's makes, like you said, it's a, they were all forming experiences and I don't want to like be like, you're so strong and like you're a hero. But I really think that, um, you are 
I just, I, I, I'm not surprised that those things happened in your past because of how you treat people today. I'm also like, I also want to add to this that like knowing who you are, like you're not at all a bad person. And like, you know, like you hear these stories growing up about like how people who do drugs are like make, make these bad life choices, like make them bad people. And like, you're not at all. And like, you're a great mom and like what you're doing for your daughter is really good. And like, I think like you telling the story is really, you know, like driving home the fact that like you can make really bad life choices and still like turn your shit around and also like still be a good person at heart. Um, so kind of to sum all of this up, what do you think that you're the most proud of in your life after you've been through, you know, all your childhood and you've done all these experiences? like had all these experiences and, you know, you got involved in this like crazy sport roller derby and then you had a kid. And so now like, what would you say that you're the most proud of? Well, I would like to say before I say what I am the most proud of that I feel very strongly that being a mother is not something that you should be the most proud of. And you know, when people talk about like, you know, their children are the reason they're living, like it just really rubs me the wrong way. I like being a mom and I love my child more than anything. But, you know, if we're put on this earth to procreate, to make these little humans that will eventually procreate and then feel the same way, there's really no purpose. And then you lose like all sense of like individuality and like why you're here, you know, not that I necessarily believe there's a reason we're here. I'm pretty nihilistic, <laughs> but you're here. You might as well enjoy it. Uh, so while I really do love being a mom, I don't, that is not something I'm most proud of. I'm proud of my child and I'm proud of what I do with her. But if you lose all sense of self as a mom, then there's really, there's no point yeah. anymore. You're just creating this thing to then create another thing. And I, I hate that idea. So that said, I would say the thing I'm most proud of is probably um, overcoming and working through my mental health issues, because that is really, really challenging. And it's still a daily fight. And one that I feel, you know, very, makes me feel very good about myself to make it through another day. Yeah. And I think that that is something to really be proud of because I think that it is a lot of hard work to make time for yourself, um, especially for something. I think sometimes therapy can really feel like selfish. Yeah. Almost. Cause I, you know, you sit there and you talk about yourself for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. Um, but I think that that is a, I mean, I know you said that you really lack in self-care, but I think it's great that you make that time um, when you can. I mean, sometimes you need to, I hate to call it selfish, but like sometimes you need to be selfish. You need to take care of yourself before you can take care of others. Well, thank you for talking. To, thank you for talking to us. Um, I always love talking to you and hearing your stories and philosophies. Um, and I love you very much. I think you're great. And we really appreciate this. Thank you. And I appreciate you guys for thinking of me and I love you guys so, so much. And I will see you soon. <laughs> okay. Love you guys. Bye. 
So that's it for our interview with Rosa Ruckus. Thanks for putting us in your ears. Um, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, opinions, thoughts, or ideas, feel free to reach out to us at fraupowpodcast at gmail.com or reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at fraupowpodcast. And remember, don't, don't be a dick. dick.